terrorists or, or their cells with a drone strike or whatever the case may be. We're, we're seeking to overcome and negate something that has been a problem. We want to diffuse it. We want to get rid of it so that it doesn't continue to exacerbate and become uh, worse and worse. So the end result of that, of trying to deal with that situation, is hopefully peace and security. Now, the military calls that a high-value target, meaning that it is very crucial that that situation be addressed by mean of a, means of a very definitive and intentional action that will yield a better result. Now, I'd like to talk this morning about some high-value targets because this principle really lines up with this text of study in Romans chapter 12. We know the first part of Romans chapter 12 really well. Most of us have memorized verses 1 and 2. But the rest of the chapter isn't probably studied quite as much. We, we know the first part, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That, that rolls off our tongues. But once we get past verse 2, we tend not to know the rest of it quite as well. And it's a very interesting passage of Scripture. In fact, verses 9 to 21 really kind of reads like the Proverbs. It's one instruction after another with the Spirit giving us very practical kind of everyday instruction of how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act toward each other. Not just in our marriages, in our families, and within the body, but in every single relationship that we have. Now, we don't want to just jump right to verse 9 because context is very important. Verses 1 to 8 kind of set the stage. Verse 1 is, is a transition from chapter 11, where he's talking about something else, into chapter 12, which is why you have the word therefore. He's, he's making an emotional and, and logical transition now into his next subject. And in verses 1 to 2, we see this very powerful and challenging call to every believer to live in a way that is completely surrendered to the Lord. He says, I urge you, it's a strong word. It's, it's not just, hey, I kind of hope you'll do this, and, and maybe this would be a good suggestion. You might want to think about this. He says, I urge you. This is, a, this is a challenge. This is a, come on, let's get going. This is something that needs to be done. He says, I urge you to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Now, the fact that the Spirit of God tells us that, the fact that he calls attention to that, and, and that he says you're to volitionally offer yourself as a living, sanctified sacrifice to God means that this is supposed to be a very intentional decision. Even though as believers we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed and we've been redeemed and we have been given a new nature and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, we still have a great responsibility to live according to what the Lord has told us. And these verses, verses 1 and 2, we're not going to dwell on them long, but let me just give you the context. Verses 1 and 2 are God's expectation of what a person who's been saved and redeemed and forgiven and cleansed and filled with the Spirit is going to do. It, it's, it's not something that's an ideal. It is an everyday expectation. Now, he calls this an act of worship. We tend to think of worship as singing, what we just did, singing and raising our hands and praying and calling on the name of the Lord. That, that is worship, but worship also filters down into our everyday life. And the everyday life is presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, 
making an intentional decision, as you see in verse 2, not to conform to the world. The word there is very interesting. It means to shape yourself according to the pattern of someone or something else. So he says, do not shape yourself. Do not allow yourself to be molded by what the world tells you is important, by what the world values, by what the world holds high and says this is how we should live. He says that culture rejects Christ. And he lays out the case for that in the first nine chapters. So don't be pressed into that. Don't be conformed to that. Don't be shaped by those who reject Christ. Instead, he says, be transformed. The word just literally means changed. Be changed by the renewing of your mind, which literally means to have a complete renovation for the better. So what's he saying here? The whole passage, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, is about having a self-sacrificial mindset of living as the spiritually renovated people that we are, submitted to the authority and power of God. And the reason why that's so important is because it radically alters our focus and it changes our allegiance. Before Christ, we were all about ourselves. Before Christ, we only cared about pleasing ourselves and indulging ourselves and honoring ourselves and advancing ourselves and promoting ourselves. But because of what Christ has done, because he's changed us, because he's given us a new nature, now we only care about pleasing him. And we want to honor him and we want to advance his name and his gospel. That's how you can tell the health of your spiritual walk. That's how you can do a self-examination and say, how well am I really walking with the Lord? Because if you only care about honoring him and advancing him, you're walking with him. If there's still so much of self that you've got to indulge and please and satisfy and have control over, then you're really not walking according to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. When we get saved, when we get transformed, our thinking completely shifts from inward to outward. And that shows up in three areas starting with what Paul's talking about here in verses 1 and 2. Instead of caring only about ourselves, he says now we only care about giving ourselves completely to the Lord. That my daily act of worship, my, my daily expression of love for the Lord and satisfaction in the Lord and contentment to trust in Him is that I give myself completely to Him. I wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm yours today. Do whatever you want. Guide me and lead me. I'm going to spend time in your word. I'm going to call on your name. I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to live for you. Everything today is for you. If that's the driving motivation of your life, you know you're walking with the Lord. Then he says in verses 3 to 8, we're called to the work of ministry to serve with a humble attitude. See, the inclination even within the body. Paul talks about this in Romans uh, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. Even within the body, there's that temptation, there's that inclination to act individually and to advance ourselves, even in areas, and he talks about this later on, in, in things that we don't naturally own, like the gifts of the Spirit. And, and this becomes something that, not, not just the gifts, but, but acting selfishly, becomes something that that polarizes because we're kind of leveraging to self-promote and we're trying to gain position and authority. And the Spirit is saying, listen, 
I saved you, I redeemed you, I transformed you, I enabled you. Why are you then drawing attention to yourself? So if you look at the text in verses 3 to 5, he says, let me kind of use the vernacular here, don't even think about valuing yourselves more highly than you should. Don't even go there. Don't even start to have that mindset. No matter what you've been given, no matter how you've been gifted, no matter how wonderful you think you are, Make sure you're remembering that you function within the body. None of us is better than the other. We all have diversity of gifts. Just because I stand up and you sit, or because somebody sings, or somebody uh, ministers, or somebody works with kids, it doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. We're all part of the body together. We've all been given gifts to please the Lord and to honor His name. So we serve the Lord. We serve the body. Third, would you see in the verses we're about to read, verses 9 to 12. We're called to give ourselves to each other. Let's read what he writes, starting in verse 9. We'll go down to verse 21, but really going to kind of concentrate the first couple of verses. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor or hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what's right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome with good. I want you to notice that there's nothing in the Christian life that is supposed to be self-centered in terms of our actions and attitudes. There's never a place in Scripture where it says, be selfish, because that's the will of the Lord. Think only of yourself. Take care of yourself. Do what is right for yourself, because that will please the Lord. Everything in Scripture when it tells us to walk with the Lord and be like Christ, deflects away from self. And it is designed to spur each other to love the Lord and to serve the Lord and to walk with the Lord. Jesus wasn't just joking around when he said, the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what he says in that is very comprehensive. On one hand, there's nowhere where the love of the Lord and love for each other should be more obvious than in this room. In the body of Christ, in the bride of Christ, it should never be more obvious that we love the Lord and we care and love about each other and sacrifice to each other than in this group. And there really is literally no way that we should ever think or act in a way that we did in our previous life. 
when we were controlled by sin and we were under bondage to sin, that, that doesn't have a place anymore. We've been delivered from it. So this, of all places, the community of the redeemed, the place where those who have been saved and love the Lord gather together, this, of all places, should be a place where we don't elevate ourselves or we don't look after our own interests because we've been redeemed by the Lord. This really is, is a place of practice. This is a place to practice our sacrifice. But the Lord hasn't called us just to stay within these walls. One of the most important actions of ministry is to be examples of Christ, not just in this room, but to be examples of Christ out in the culture. The culture hates the Lord this morning. If we haven't picked up on that yet, it's going to be increasingly so in the next few months and next few years if the Lord delays that long. The culture hates Jesus Christ. And outside of spreading the gospel message, which we are called to do, the only way we can uh, show the love of Christ, the only way we can draw people to the gospel is to show love and sacrifice, not just to each other. That's a given. That shouldn't even be a question. But to show love and sacrifice to people who don't know Christ. When you look at the interactions that Jesus had with people, prostitutes, lepers, enemies of his nation, tax collectors who were despised, even his disciples. One of the main characteristics that we always see in the interactions of Jesus is that he had love and respect for people. And he did it especially with people who were not liked, people who were not likable, and people who were rejected by culture. Jesus genuinely cared about people. He genuinely loved people. And as believers, we're supposed to follow his example and do that in our daily life. You know, there are a lot of ways that we can show love for people, a lot of ways that we can show care for each other and try to tell somebody that we think highly of them. Men usually stumble all over this when it comes to Valentine's Day and birthdays and anniversaries. We're trying so hard, aren't we guys, to figure out how we can show our wives that we appreciate them. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like I fall short. We, we try to, to do it with things that, that are, are, are wonderful, but they're kind of temporary and superficial. We buy flowers or we get a card or we spend time together or we, or we do something that that seems to have some meaning, and it does, but it isn't really at the core of what makes that relationship have value. We need to make undeniable statements of undeniable love. What are we doing this morning? What are you and I doing in our relationships that has lasting meaning and value? As we interact with our spouses, how are we showing them not just that we care about them because Hallmark tells us to. How, how do we care about them because we really care about them and we love them? How do our kids know that we respect them and love them and we're proud of them and we care so deeply about them and, and our, our lives just bleed for them? How do we show that to a friend or to another believer or to a non-believer? How are we showing genuine love and respect for each other? Because you and I have a lot of power. We have the power to either build up or we have the power to tear down. Today you have choices. Are you going to build up those around you or are you going to tear them down? 
Are you going to edify or are you going to chip away and damage? That's the choice that we have to make today. And if we follow Jesus' example, we see that Jesus edified and showed respect and showed love for people. You know, respect is not a concept that's, that's real prevalent in our culture. We don't talk about respecting people a lot. And we see that diminishing in what's going on around us in society. We even see it diminishing a little bit in churches. So often when I'm counseling couples, this is the, this is the key issue. A loss of respect. A loss of love. A loss of value for the relationship. And it creates a world of problems. I remember a counseling appointment I had about 15 years ago. I hope I've never told you this story before. Where I had never met this couple. And they called me like three weeks before the wedding and said... Um, the, the pastor that was going to marry us is backed out. Would you marry us? I'm always a little wary of that, but I thought, all right, I'll meet with you. Well, when I met with them, I realized that the pastor who had backed out had a really good reason. Because in the first 10 minutes of asking them very basic questions, who are you, you know, how did you guys get together, what's your relationship like, tell me what's going on. Within 10 minutes, the girl had physically turned her chair toward her fiancé and started screaming at him, telling him how lazy he was and how pathetic he was and how he needed to get a life. Now, grant you, this is two weeks before the ceremony. Fourteen days. I mean, we're, we're right in the window of, now let's finalize everything. But she was literally saying to him, I'll never forget it, you're so worthless, why don't you do something? She's about to commit herself for life to this guy. And she's pointing her finger and screaming and saying, why don't you do something? There was complete contempt and complete disrespect for him. And I, I'm sure I was sitting there going, I mean, I'm not shocked by much in counseling, but that one took me off guard. I've never seen anything like it. And the amazing thing was, this is a couple that's about to, that supposedly loves each other. This is not people that have been married 30 years. The amazing thing was, he didn't fight back. He essentially agreed with her. She had no respect for him, and he had no respect for himself. It was awful. Now, I, because I'm such an astute student of behavior, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, it was obviously obvious what to tell them. I think it was the first time I ever told a couple this. I said, stop for a second. She's still fuming, and he's like, you know, like a puppy that's just been beaten and doesn't know what to do. I said, let me tell you guys something. I know there's a newsflash, but you shouldn't get married. In fact, I don't even think you guys should be friends. You don't like each other. Now, I want to tell you something I've never told a couple before. You need to call off this wedding. It will be a mistake if you get married. I'm willing to spend time with you to work on your relationship. Honestly, I don't think that's going to go too well, but I'm willing. But for now, it doesn't matter that you've got invitations out. It doesn't matter that you've got a dress. It doesn't matter that your mothers are stressed. You guys need to cancel this wedding. And they looked at me like I was from Mars. And they didn't cancel it. Two weeks later, they got married, not by me. 
and they thought it was all going to work out and everything would be great, within a year they were divorced. Now that's a very dramatic example, but it shows how a lack of respect undermines the core of any relationships. Listen, a, a relationship can survive a lot. It can survive a health crisis. It can survive a, a financial crisis. It can survive in-laws. It can survive a lot of things. But once respect is lost, it creates a wound that is not easily healed. And instead of fighting for respect and fighting to be the people we should be and fighting to sacrifice, when that happens, we start to filter everything through that loss of respect. And it leads to bitterness and resentment. And soon we're acting and reacting differently and we stopped honoring the person the way that we should. We even start to lose respect for ourselves. We start to say, how in the world did I get into this? How did I get here? And we stop valuing the other person, and then we stop valuing ourselves, and our self-worth takes a hit, and there's a huge problem because value has been lost. Now, sometimes that seems justified, but even in justifiable problems, we have to fight to rebuild and to continue to sacrifice. Every relationship has value. It has some personal worth. That's why the relationships that are closest to us, like our spouse or our kids or our family or our good friends, that's why when problems come, it's magnified. When it's just an acquaintance and you have a rub between you, it's like, oh, well, I don't know them very well. It doesn't mean much to me. But listen, when you have a fight with your spouse, it's like, whoa, my day is now ruined. When you have a, a break with a close friend and you're like, what in the world's going on and where did that come from and how did it escalate to that? That, that feels more painful. The highs are higher and the lows are lower. But the Holy Spirit says, that's not what's supposed to happen. In fact, it goes even beyond spouse and kids and family and friends and church. Look back at the verses. He's essentially saying in verses 9 to 10, that in every relationship, especially with believers, but in every relationship, we are to give preference to each other. We're to show love without hypocrisy. In other words, we're not supposed to be fake. Oh yeah, I really care about you, but I really don't. Love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not just love your spouse as yourself or love your kid as yourself. That's a slam dunk. That's easy. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And love is sacrifice. And he says, do that without hypocrisy. Don't think one thing and say another. And the call here is for us to take the lead in being sacrificial. Listen now, no matter what the other person is doing. We're not to do it to take credit. We're not to do it to manipulate. We're to do it to show love and value. In other words, every single person around us should be treated like a high-value target, not to destroy, but to build up. To eliminate the problem so it will get better. That doesn't mean eliminate the person, right? And it doesn't mean walk away. It means to eliminate what is creating 
dissension and problem and difficulty between the two of you so that the situation will move into a state of peace. How do we do that? We do that by being the ones who take the initiative to sacrifice. That we show value, we show love by being the one who says, I'll go first and I'll keep going first no matter what you're doing. I will be the one who gives and yields because I want you to be built up and strengthened and encouraged. And in doing that, listen now, in doing that, we model Christ and we honor Christ. Now, that leads to the difficult, challenging question of the study. Does that describe all of our relationships? Does that describe especially the relationships that we have in the body and with those who are in the family of God? See, we're called to be the first to sacrifice. I thought, that's a great little catchphrase. It sounds like something you'd hear from the Marines. The first to sacrifice. You and I, Romans 12, 9, are called to be the first to sacrifice. But think how quickly we bail on that. Think how quickly we try to win the battle with each other to try to gain the upper hand. And when the other person starts to speak their opinion, we, we emotionally or even physically sometimes just kind of put up our hand, right? Nobody's done that before. I know I'm giving you new information here, but just try to imagine it, okay? The other person's trying to defend themselves. Which... Don't want to hear it. You have nothing to say to me. Your thoughts aren't right. Your actions aren't right. You don't do things the right way. You don't have the background or experience or knowledge that's worthy of me. Oh, we say that. We do say that by our nonverbal and by our words and by our actions. Instead of valuing them and loving them and showing them the mercy of Christ, we treat people with disrespect and we don't honor them the way that we should. And that's what the world does. And we're called to be out of the world. We're called to be different from the world, to have a different mindset. Not selfish ambition. Our relationships are supposed to be different. How we talk to each other. How we treat each other. What we say. When we say it. How we say it. Does it undercut respect? Does it erode confidence? Does the person feel betrayed? I've seen how betrayal relationships can cause such great pain. It can damage the foundations of relationship, from divorce to churches to friendships that were killed by disrespect. I've seen the disrespect of sexual infidelity and tolerance of immoral images and friendships that undermine trust and cause feelings of dishonor. But it's not always about what other people do. What about the times when we're the ones who do the damage? What about the, the times when we're the agents of disrespect? We hate it when somebody does it to us. So we know good and well how it feels when we do it to somebody else. And verse 9 says, this is not the characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Instead, look at it. We're called to be devoted, verse 10, to one another. The text literally means to tenderly love the other person and give them the higher place. 
That's not just be loyal to each other, be friends, be there when somebody needs to call you 3 o'clock in the morning. It goes way beyond that. He says tenderly, love each other, put the other person first. Come on, get out of your pride and sacrifice and give to that person, even if they're not treating you right. And here's the thing, that's supposed to be true of every relationship that we have. Now, How do we do that? Because I can't imagine that's easy. Let's talk about two ways, real quickly, how we can show more respect and honor and value in our relationship. Turn for just a second to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's just talk this morning from two passages about two ways that we can show more value in every relationship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. How do we show love and respect and value for each other? The first way we do it is by promoting purity and holiness. God's will, right here, it's stated. I remember all through college, I don't know what God's will is. I wish God would reveal his will to me and show me his will. And it was right there in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, you want to know the will of God? It's that you be holy. If you're holy, I'll take care of everything else. You want to know my will? You want to know my leading? You want to know my plans? You take care of being holy and being like me, and I'll make it abundantly clear to you. But if you wander away from me and stray and fight me and rebel against me, I'm not going to show you what I have planned for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification, to be holy and set apart and distinct from the culture, not under the influence of sin, to aggressively and intentionally abstain from impurity. And in doing that, we have to be very careful and intentional that our, any impurity that we have doesn't stain somebody else. That our impurity doesn't filter into the life of another person. How do we do that? By inciting somebody to defy the word of God. By encouraging somebody to compromise their spiritual standards. That's the same thing as devaluing them. Teenagers, young adults, this is especially applicable for you. Because you will be tempted to give in and to go along. You may even be the one doing the tempting. Married couples, this applies to us. In Ephesians 5, both husband and wife are told to be loving, sacrificial, and respectful to each other. Wives, by subjecting yourselves to your husband as unto the Lord, which he's having respect for our position as leaders, and trust me, that is not an easy position or one that we greatly enjoy all the time. But to yield yourself 
and trust out of love and respect and value. Husbands, we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loves us, which means sacrificially and selflessly with great value because that's how Christ did it. In both texts, in both cases, the text points to him. It says, look at Christ. Look at what he did. Look at the respect and love and value and honor that he showed to us that we absolutely did not deserve. But his love had a purpose. The purpose was to sanctify us so he someday will present us holy and blameless. Everybody say amen. God's going to walk me up to him and say, here's Rhodes. He's holy and blameless. And I'm going to go, no. And Christ is going to say, you're good because of me. Can you imagine such a thing that God will take our lives and say, you're washed, you're holy, you're blameless in my sight, and I present you to myself as, your, as my child. That's what he's done. Husbands, love your wives that way. Wives, love your husbands that way. And men, we actually have an extra responsibility. We're supposed to love and sacrifice and honor our wives and our kids in such a way that we lead them to be more holy. It's not just getting through the day and bringing her flowers on the anniversary and I'm trying my best. Uh Uh-uh. We have a job to make a situation where our family will be more holy. It's not just about kids and love and intimacy. And that doesn't mean that women are less holy than men. In fact, in most cases, it's just the opposite. It means that we're to show love and respect and value for our wives in such a way that they will be more pure and more in love with Jesus Christ. And then we're supposed to teach that and train that into our kids. They need to see that genuine love is shown in how sacrificial and holy we are. So they will make the choices. Listen, anyone under 25 in this room, if you're a girl, if you are dating or you're thinking about dating, I want to tell you a little secret about guys, okay, between you and me and 150 other people. Guys are incredibly persuasive, and they say a lot of things that sound right. But if they don't honor you physically, ethically, and spiritually, dump them. And dump them now, because you're going to get hurt. Boys, young teens, young men, If you're dating a girl that doesn't respect your values, I don't care how cute she is, get rid of her. The same holds true for your friends and your peers, and now it moves up into us adults. If your friends and your peers are not respecting you and not upholding your values and not encouraging you to be more holy but are challenging you to be unholy, I'm going to tell you right now, Don't go out with them again. Don't hang out with them again. Not because we want to isolate ourselves from the world, but it is very important that we continue to walk in holiness. So if they're dragging you down, get rid of them. There are other friends you can hang out with. 
This is serious stuff. And we're called not only to protect ourselves, but to be a person that promotes purity and holiness and to be around people who do the same. That's the value of this room. That's the value of the church that we can gather together and say we're going to promote purity and holiness in our lives and we're not going to be ashamed about it. Second, turn over just for a second to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. How do we show respect and honor? We promote purity and holiness. Second, we ensure that the other person feels fully secure in our respect. The second way we can show more value is to make sure to do everything we can that the other person feels completely secure in our respect and in our faithfulness. I was talking to a pastor once at a lunch and he gave me this method of evaluation. He said, in any relationship, is the other person confident of your respect? In any relationship you have, does that other person know for sure that you respect them? Your wife, your husband, your friends, your kids, your church, people at work. Do they constantly feel overlooked and underappreciated? Do, do they constantly kind of struggle with, with feeling a little bit disrespected, like you just don't value them the way that they should? Listen, you can have all kinds of justification why that may be so, but the Scripture tells us to love and value and respect each other. And when we don't do that, it undermines confidence. Now that's especially going to be true if that other person has experienced unfaithfulness or dishonesty in other relationships. Because past hurts create future insecurities. When somebody's been damaged in the past, they're even more gun-shy, they're even more aware, they've been burned, they're on the defensive, they're looking for proof, they're going to be hesitant, they're going to be uh, distrustful for a time until you really prove. But if we're in that kind of relationship and we keep kind of hitting at them and taking them back to that place of hurt, the, the respect and the honor is never going to grow. So how do we offset it? Look at Luke chapter 14 and verse 7. This is kind of a strange passage. It doesn't seem like it applies, but it does. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And he said to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. Awkward. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. When you're invited, instead, go and recline at the last place. So when the one who's invited you comes, he may say to you, wait a second, why are you back here? That's my terminology. He'll say, friend, move up higher. Then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the priority. This is our last thought. Notice the priority that Jesus places on having a mindset and a posture of humility. He says, don't do anything to exalt yourself or to take the place of honor in the relationship. We should never say in the body of believers, hey, I need to be noticed. 
Somebody pay attention to me. Somebody give me some credit. Of all places in the body, we're supposed to say, I will take the lesser position, not as an angle to say, look at me, I'm taking the lesser position, now exalt me. No, that's not the point he's making. He's saying, instead of going over here and saying, well, I'm going to sit in the nice place, we're to go over here and just mind our own business and take a lesser position, and if somebody notices, great, and if they don't, no problem. He says, occupy the lesser position so that you may be exalted. Listen, if you want to be noticed and appreciated more, and this applies to any relationship, if you want to be noticed and appreciated more, start by being humble. Be the first to sacrifice. Be the first to be humble. It seems ironic and it seems counterproductive, but it is true. Why? Because spiritually it follows Christ's example. And practically, by taking the place of sacrifice, people will respect you more. When we take the place of honor, it doesn't cause people to respect us. It causes people to resent us. Now you say, well, Paul, that's kind of cruddy. That doesn't excite me, and, and I'm going to feel used. And, and, you know... People won't appreciate me if I take the lesser position. I'm telling you right now, in marriage, if you want your spouse to respect you more, continually humble yourself. Think of the marriages that would be healed this morning if we held that attitude. Building up instead of chipping away. That's why the enemy is fighting so hard right now in our hearts and minds. That's why he's going after marriages right now because he thinks if I can get them to put themselves first, I will do significant damage. You say, well, if I do that, the other person's going to take advantage of me. To which I say, so what? Is it better to be in a battle for position or is it better to honor what the Lord tells us to do? Well, but, but it's more fun to get an upper hand. Yeah, it is. It's more fun to be a jerk sometimes. I know that is true. And I'm glad that makes you feel better, but that's not in the Bible. If anything, we're told just the opposite. Everything Jesus did filled us. Listen, I'm done. Everything Jesus did filled us with the confidence of his love, even though we didn't deserve it. Everything Jesus did filled us with the confidence of his love and showed us that he loves us, respects us, and values us, even though we didn't care, even though we didn't ask for it, even though we didn't deserve it, and even though he had to sacrifice everything to give it to us, he still showed us love and value. Now he says to us, do it with each other. You love me. You respect me. You're sacrificed to me. You want to be an example of me. Here's how you do it. You love me. Oh, you love me with all your heart. And then you treat other people like I treated you. And we can't come back and say, well, that, that, that. He says, uh-uh. I gave everything, and you didn't deserve it. 
Somebody in your life this morning may not deserve your love and your sacrifice and your respect and your value. And I'm sorry for that. And I know that is painful. But God says, I want you to love them like I loved you before you even desired it. When I could have given up on you and I could have said, you're not worth it. You've hurt me beyond measure. I'm not giving up. Aren't you glad he didn't? Not giving up. I'm coming down to redeem you. I'm going to show you love like you've never seen before, and I'm going to show you value to the extent that when you trust in me, I will declare you holy in my sight and my possession. Oh, if we would practice that in our relationships, they would be so different. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we're humbled by it and challenged by it. We know how difficult this is. And Lord, we can't do this without your help. So Lord, I pray across this room this morning that our hearts would be convicted, that you would bring to mind very clear examples of situations where we need to yield. Father, I ask you this morning, heal relationships that are broken. Heal marriages that are fractured. We don't know how that will happen, but Lord, you tell us to take the first step, to be the first to sacrifice. Continue to spur us to do that, Lord. We know the enemy, even right now as we pray, is calling us to reject your word and to continue to do what we think will bring us satisfaction. But Lord, he's a liar. So Lord, open our hearts continually throughout the day, throughout the week, to be receptive to what your word has told us. To show value and honor. To love without hypocrisy. And to be the first to sacrifice. Help us, Lord. We need it so badly. We need your help to do this. And Lord, we will walk closely with you so that we'll be in line with your will. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.